Hi, I'm Steve. I'm Erin. And I'm Daniel. And we're the Verbal Reasoning Podcast. Three friends with professional scientific backgrounds. Talking about all things under the sun in the most digestible way. Enjoy. Welcome to today's episode of the Verbal Reasoning Podcast. Today we have on Yusuf Rabia, and he is going to be our expert today on eugenics. Yusuf, could you potentially explain, first of all, who you are? And did I get that right when I said eugenics? Sure. So, uh, hi, everyone. My name is Yusuf. I am a PhD candidate at uh, University College London, uh, where I study in the Department of Science, Technology and Engineering and Public Policy. Uh, so my background is in biochemistry, but I've always sort of been quite interested in the, in the public policy side and the, I suppose, the societal impact of new biological techniques. And my PhD studies are mainly focused on the implementation of genome engineering technologies, such as CRISPR, into the human germline. Uh, and so this is like quite a controversial topic because of uh, one of the themes that I'm sure we'll discuss today, which is eugenics. And which is something that was historically very popular during the 1930s, really through to the 70s, probably characterized the best by uh, Nazi Germany, actually, and their want and demand for a superior race. Uh, and obviously, these types of technologies uh, have uh, the impact of, I suppose, creating genetic barriers between people. And so it's quite important that we don't revert back to a, a place where one human is deemed more superior than the other. So this is sort of the topic of, of my research. Okay, so um, what can you get into a bit more of what exactly eugenics is then? Because obviously you've mentioned how most people, when they hear about eugenics, they think back to Nazi Germany and super soldiers and Aryan race and stuff like that. But what exactly is it from a scientific standpoint? Yeah, so eugenics uh, is basically uh, a movement which essentially says that certain people with certain genes or characteristics should, uh, should be prevented from uh, breeding, essentially. So, uh, for example, uh, in the 1930s and 40s, there was this classification of people as being uh, feeble-minded. And the way that people would characterize feeble-mindedness was through you know, IQ tests, for example. So if you got a really low mark on an IQ test and you were classed as feeble-minded, uh, there were laws in many states in the US and across the world really where uh, the government could actually uh, force sterilize you and so you weren't able to reproduce. And the whole idea of you, the, the founders of eugenics were we need to prevent people who have undesirable genetic traits from reproducing and make sure that only the people who have the desired traits actually reproduce. Of course, this was sort of an elitist club, and therefore a lot of the eugenicists, they believe that it was the people of the higher classes who should be reproducing more, whilst the people of the lower classes uh, should be prevented from reproducing because they were associated with you know, poverty, poor working conditions, uh, and uh, traits, even traits such as alcoholism and if you were a prostitute, for example, they would somehow attribute that to your genetics rather than your environment. And so really, this was a, it was a movement that was, uh, I mean, hugely popular, as, as I mentioned, in Nazi Germany, because they, Nazi Germany didn't want certain populations uh, to exist anymore. So, the, you know, the Jewish population being the prime example, 
you also had Romani gypsies um, that were a population that were very commonly targeted. And I suppose the whole objective really was we need to create a race which has very desirable traits. And by that, it could be they are not blind, they are not deaf, they are not feeble-minded, which was this definition that is uh, that was used a lot in that period. Yeah. I think also like a good example is also during colonialism, there was quite a big push in like eugenic studies uh, to basically um, justify and prove that, you know, the Western uh, European was more superior than the colonies. Yeah. So, so, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think one of the big, one of the really controversial topics actually is about the, the Europeanization of the colonies. So if you take um, a country like Brazil, for example, or Mexico, you would have advocates who were natively Mexican who said it is important that we Europeanize the Mexican or the Brazilian population because this would lead to a genetically stronger and superior race. And so it was really this, at the end of the day, in a lot of circumstances, it was the tying of essentially, you know, white European supremacy. And they would align that to genetics without any sort of causal link. And then they would say that, oh, actually, it's, this is the most important thing you can do. And then you saw this again in Australia with the Aborigines, very similar thing, where mm-hmm. um, you know, Aborigines were not considered to be genetically equal to uh, the white European colonizers. Uh, and there were a lot of different programs where Aborigine children, for example, were taken away from their families and they were forced to be brought up with white at the time, British descendant families. And that's still quite a big controversy in Australia. So yeah, it's a movement that really, it was kind of spread all over the world. So it kind of touched every corner of the globe. That's interesting. Historically, the way you make it sound is as though the kind of stereotypical understanding of eugenics is actually the correct understanding of it, historically speaking, as in, you know, eugenics was used to put into place this sort of power structure of this particular Mm -hmm. race, especially the European race, is better than xyz races and for example it's quite interesting that they were really pushing for you know blonde blue-eyed individuals in nazi germany for example but there is no you know there is no physical or intellectual advantage to being blonde with blue eyes so it kind of it's an interesting part that maybe we can discuss a little bit about what is a good trait what is a desirable trait and why would it be advantageous to you to even have it so would being blonde, for example, make you more smart? Is there any kind of study that has, do you know what I mean? Has, has yeah, shown yeah. that? Why would that be a thing oh. that we should desire? Isn't, um, isn't the saying that, you know, the blonder you are, the dumber you are? I mean, yeah, that's, <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> that's been the modern stereotype. But I mean, what yeah. was it about that time? Is it just because there's less blonde people? So humans covet, you know, being blonde naturally? Or what is it that leads to that desire? <clears throat> It's, it's a really interesting point, actually. I think, um, I mean, with regards to Nazi Germany and, and Hitler's obsession with, with blonde, blonde hair and blue eyes, it's quite interesting because he, he himself was a brunette with, with brown eyes. And you would have thought um, it would have made more sense to, to have, if he was looking to create a, a super race, it would have made more sense to, for them to have copied his traits. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't know too much as to why he had those preferences for blonde people. Mm. But in response to your, your question about are there, you know, genetic advantages or genetic traits that would make you, I suppose, a more superior human. I mean, one of the 
it's funny talking about eugenics because eugenics essentially encouraged the interbreeding of a very small pool of people that were deemed as like the higher class people. Yeah. Uh, but actually everyone knows nowadays that genetically diverse children uh, produce, sorry, genetically diverse parents produce stronger offspring because of the way the immune system works. So if you have a parent who is from South America and you have a parent who is from uh, the Far East, for example, mm-hmm. and they have a child, uh, because of the adaptive immune system, it actually means that the offspring inherits some sort of immunity to diseases which are found in the Far East and those which are found in, in South America, for example. Um, yeah. Whilst if you just have two parents who are both from South America, your adaptive immune system at the beginning, at least, is really only focused and built around diseases that are present in one geography. Uh, so actually, like that was kind of, that's, that's always, I mean, since that piece of information came to light, it kind of really just discredited eugenics completely because mm-hmm. the more, typically, the more diverse your parents are, the, I, say, I suppose, evolutionary speaking, you produce stronger children. Congratulations, Dan. You won the race. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a dub for me? And that's a massive yeah, dub for you, race. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, so Dan's of uh, dual heritage. Oh, well, probably more, to be honest, down the line. But <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a mixed race. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. We've talked a lot about the 1930s, 36, etc. Mm. So what are the modern applications for eugenics? And what are the pros for nowadays? Yeah, so I suppose, um, I mean, the, the reason I'm sort of studying it nowadays and the, the modern side to it is that we are kind of coming to an age now where a lot of the medicine we have in Western society is becoming more and more personalized. And what I mean by that is if you take, for example, even in vitro fertilization, if you are a couple who wants to have a child, you can have maybe a couple, you can maybe have up to like four or five fertilized embryos. And those embryos can already be screened for certain genetic traits. So, you know, they can be screened for uh, this one particular disease, which is the name escapes me, but it's essentially the the child would be unable to uh, process a certain amino acid, which is essential for building uh, proteins in the body, which is how cells uh, function. So the, idea, the modern applications now are really centered around, if we have all these genome editing technologies, what we're essentially saying is that this gene is better than that gene, which is the founding principle of eugenics, that's genetic superiority. And it also brings a problem where if we get to a point in society that these technologies, and they will become available because they've already been used, um, if these types of technologies are not regulated in the right way, there is really a danger of uh, certain groups of people being almost marginalized because they are said to have you know, defunct genes. So if, for example, a child is born deaf and the parents had the option to screen the child beforehand, but they chose not to, and the child is born deaf, knowing that this technology is around that could have prevented the child being born this way, there is some level of discrimination potentially that could be brought to the parents. Mm. And so it's really important that we kind of, we don't live in a society that essentially marginalizes people who have these types of conditions because, you know, we have developed society at a, because I'd like to think we are also quite an empathetic species as a whole. You know, we have charities that support each other. We have, you know, charities for the deaf, charities for the blind. These are really strong communities of people. And what you don't want to do is in some way 
almost marginalize these people by saying, oh, we've found a new way to essentially remove this type of condition from mm -hmm. the human race. So it's a very delicate balance of, you know, we have to maintain that empathy and that support for these people who have these conditions. And on the other side, uh, how do we apply this new type of technology that could potentially, um, you know, remove a lot of uh, health conditions from an embryo, for example. That's really interesting. Maybe you can go into like the technicalities of like, what is the, so I understand the screening part, but what is CRISPR? I mean, what does the CRISPR technology do exactly? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of uh, different types of CRISPR, I suppose you can call them systems. So one of the most famous ones is called the CRISPR-Cas9 system, uh, which is the one that has been used a lot around the world in, in laboratories. But essentially, think of it as a sort of cut and paste mechanism, as you would on like a, a word processor. So um, I'll use the example of cystic fibrosis as a disease. So um, cystic fibrosis, uh, in a lot of cases, the disease can be pinpointed to a single nucleotide mutation within the gene, right? So if you just imagine you had a, a couple of scissors, I suppose, and you yeah. cut that gene out, and then you put a replica gene in its place where that mutation is fixed. And because you do this in the germline phase, that mutation carries uh, oh. as the embryo develops, and therefore the child that is born uh, does not have cystic fibrosis. And the way this is done is, is through sort of enzymes, which are essentially um, proteins that have a almost like a metabolic function where they're able to kind of cut strands of DNA and then paste this DNA. And, and actually CRISPR-Cas9 is uh, a type of mechanism that was discovered in bacteria, actually. Right. So this is where the, uh, the system comes from. Oh, that's really interesting. And I guess then... Yeah, so we can basically design our children, in a sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How far are we from that? Like, I mean, it's, we... it's. I mean, it's already been done, which is the the amazing thing. It's um, so in 2018 there was a a Chinese professor, I forget the university he was at, but he. Uh, so there's a human genome summit, international human genome summit every year. I think this year it was in Hong Kong. And he basically stood up in front of the whole scientific community and said, listen, I have performed CRISPR genome editing on embryos in a Chinese mother for her twin daughters. And what he did was he edited a certain gene uh, to provide HIV resistance to the children. So I think this was called the CCR5 gene. Uh, and obviously, like everyone was completely shocked because there is a huge taboo around this subject in the scientific community. And I suppose a, a lot of scientists believe that the clinical applications of this technology should not exist yet. Uh, and so he kind of stood up and, and said this. And so and actually these mutations um, that were actually put into the children, they were uh, actually found to have been sustained. Mm. Uh, so it has actually already happened and this technology is already here. But like, do we know what the long-term effects of that is? Like, have we seen, do, do, can we anticipate whether a child will grow up normally or whether it will see further complications down the line because we, let's say, edited a gene and we don't quite understand the full effect of that? Yeah, no, exactly. I think uh, in this case, for example, there was with these two Chinese girls, uh, there was an epidemiology study done which looked at people who had these types of mutations existing uh, from birth and i think it found that it lowered their life expectancy by 20 percent 
something oh, wow. like that. So as sorry, as probability. So that already is a is a huge problem because you you've introduced a genetic change into someone and there's a chance that they might live less. So that's that's just one example of what could happen. But um and you know it's uh, it's quite incredible that uh, it was able to go ahead. So um, I was going to put it kind of into the context of I, I'm on this podcast. I just want to give a preface. Uh, I always talk about class. So uh, I was going to give it in that context. You said, uh, for example, if you know that you can do this test to weed out a specific uh, mutation in your child that would maybe lead them to being deaf, but you don't do it, it could be viewed as discrimination towards your child. But let's say when this becomes widely available to the public, is it going to be done through an NHS style system or is only the rich going to have access to it? Because then within itself, you're creating one group which is genetically superior, so to speak, because they have wealth and because they can, you know, edit out their genes. And then you have the lower classes, which aren't going to be able to do that. And then that's going to cause a whole different kind of discrimination. So like, what would be the future of the economics behind this sort of thing? Is it going to be cheap? Is it going to be expensive? Who's going to have access to it? Yeah, so in the case, uh, you know, this is something that my research touches on a lot. Um, in the case of the UK, uh, this type of uh, anything to do with embryology is monitored by an organization, an organization called the HFEA, which is the Embryology Authority uh, for Human Fertilization. So because uh, the UK Royal Society is actually due to publish a paper on how this type of technology uh, could be applied in the UK. But you raise a really interesting point because in the UK, we have the benefits of having a public health system where all of this is regulated by the public authorities. And I'd like to think because of that type of regulation we have, um, the access should be equal no matter what your income is in society. However, you know, just cross the Atlantic Ocean over to the US where there's barely any public health system and there's a lot of private clinics, you could very easily see this type of technology um, only being accessed by the rich, absolutely. Um, and the, only the rich could afford to have designer babies, and only the rich could uh, afford to have children uh, who don't carry cystic fibrosis, for example. Uh, so it's a, it's a huge problem. And uh, this is something that the, the scientific community is, has really... Um, been trying to address in the last few years the need for an international consensus on how this type of technology is applied it's like you said where you know maybe that before like no one tried it and then someone in china finally did it kind of was a shock to everyone it feels like you know due to entropy in life like it's going to be carried on and would other nations kind of put themselves at a disadvantage just because another nation has allowed uh you know although it's based on uh, capitalism has allowed yeah. uh, you know gene editing i think eventually a domino effect will happen where one nation goes and then all the other nations that you know propose all these rules that are nice would also yeah. end up doing the same thing just to you know to keep up it's a, it's a slippery slope i think yeah i think it's um I've, I've spoken to a few um laboratory heads who who deal with crispr cas technology and I've, I've asked them about their opinion on this and they've all they've all told me the same answer which is, it's not, a, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when this becomes available. Uh, so I think we have, to, we have to accept that it is coming, and we need to be ready to make sure that we have the proper public policy to, mm-hmm. to deal with it, uh, to make sure that all of society 
can have access to it. What kind of ethical training do you and your peers have to go through? Uh, so this is actually something that uh, I'm working with on UCL, uh, which is looking at uh, introducing more bioethics into uh, undergraduate students, especially. So, uh, you know, from my experience, I, I studied biochemistry at undergrad, and we talked a lot about many, I suppose, controversial topics such as genome editing and stem cell therapy and things along those lines. Uh, but the there was a huge lack of uh, bioethics modules in any of my degree um, and this is something that we're kind of advocating for now we need to be able to teach more undergraduate students who are learning about these technologies and they're going to be the ones in the clinics applying these technologies they need to have some sort of bioethics training uh, for sure this might work regionally but like we know ethics in general isn't agreed upon worldwide i mean you know one place may, may deem one thing ethical and then you go to another nation, it's something totally different. Uh, do you think the international medical community will be able to converge? Or do you think that's impossible and like things will be applied differently everywhere? It's, it's a really interesting point. I think, um, you know, I think with regards to the, clin to the clinic, to the laboratories, uh, the majority of uh, scientific groups that work on these types of studies are based in the US, in Europe. Uh, or in some cases in Australia, and I imagine there are some groups in the, in the Far East as well, in Japan and in China. And I think the consensus among those scientific groups is they're very much, we need to ensure that when this technology becomes available, it is available to everyone. And we do not use this technology to build a baby who has blue eyes and blonde hair. We use this technology to help stop someone from developing a certain disease or a certain condition. You raise a really interesting point because obviously every country in the world has, uh, you know, a different religion. You know, there are some countries um, that follow certain religions where people would not feel comfortable doing this uh, with these types of technologies. At the same time, there are other countries that are maybe more left-wing or more right-wing and they'll have different, I'm sure they'll have different views as well. So the, you know, the, the, importance, of de the importance of developing an international consensus is huge. But there'll be huge challenges as well, because as you said, every scientific authority around the world thinks very differently. So whether or not that, whether or not that comes to fruition, I, I personally don't think it will happen mm -hmm. um, because I, I, I haven't really seen too many examples of that in, uh, in sort of modern experimentation. So I think this will be done on a country by country basis. Um, and there might be some sort of non-binding agreement between those countries, but yeah. I, I personally can't see it happening. Do you think like, so at the moment in the West or in the worldwide, we have like beauty standards, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in Africa, women are bleaching and in the, like darker skin countries, women bleach their skin because there's a beauty standard to be more, let's say fair skinned everywhere around the world. There's kind of a beauty standard, which is usually based around the European, uh, you know, proto uh, human. Do you think this will kind of this will accelerate that kind of um, trying to tend towards one race uh, as it's seen beneficial or attractive? Do you, do you think will, this will have a big effect on that industry? Yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting you bring that point up because um, you know going all the way back to the uh, the nineteen thirties, forties, and fifties, when I mentioned about these IQ tests that they used to do, one of the questions on this IQ test. Uh, was a drawing of two women and on that you basically had to choose from those two women which one was prettier 
And obviously that's, that's insane because if you have two girls in front of you and you are deciding which is prettier, everyone has a different opinion, right? Yeah, yeah. And the prettiness was very much based on the white European face, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is a very, you know, it's a very small characteristic if you compare it to the diversity you find in the world. Yeah. So these, these IQ tests back then were already skewed towards mm-hmm. what you said, which is, which is really funny. And I think uh, with regards to, you know, the, the beauty standards, uh, I think you're right. I think these beauty standards have changed amongst the ages. In, mm-hmm. in the past, it was the beauty standard was for women who were uh, heavier because that was a sign of affluence and that was something attractive to, uh, to someone. Mm. Um, now it is skinny. Um, well, and I'm all sure you curvy ladies, hit me up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love you. We love you. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> so this was. Uh, so yeah, I think I think beauty standards for sure are something that I can imagine parents wanting their kids to have whatever traits. I, I'd like to think we don't get to that stage. I, I'd really like to think with this technology, it's a case that you know this technology. You have a list of approved conditions for what you screen. So be it cystic fibrosis or, or MS, for example, you screen the embryo for it. And if you find that there's an embryo carrying this, you perform a sort of genetic modification to that embryo. But I would not like to be screening for, does the kid have blue eyes or green eyes? I think that's, yeah. uh, I think that's excessive. Yeah. Aaron, you had a question, I think. Um, yeah, I just, had a, I just had a kind of specific uh, question. So I want to talk about a specific gene mutation and kind of expand from there. So, uh, for example, there is a gene called the MSTM gene, which, when mutated, uh, kind of stops the myostatin production in the body. And myostatin is used to regulate muscle growth. So what you have is when people have this mutation, they end up incredibly muscular because the body doesn't know when to kind of limit the muscle growth in a healthy way. Wait, what was this? Exactly, exactly. That is interesting. This is the this is this is why I want to talk about it because now that might seem perfect. Okay, we mutate this one gene and you basically look like the Hulk. Um, Eddie Hall is the world's uh, one of the world's strongest men. He has this mutation, so he's really really muscular. Um, it seems great, and also there's the research implications, which is if you have a disease from birth that causes muscle wasting we might be able to find the specific genes that we can mutate in people who have those diseases to help them grow muscles. Mm. Because obviously that's, that's an issue that they have. But the downside of having this mutation is that all of your muscles grow, including your heart, which can cause mm. the heart complications. And a lot of these people have shorter lifespans because their hearts grow to a size, which is, it's just not good for your body. If we were to, as we were discussing, have, you know, this sort of gene editing and so on going forward, let's, let's stop talking about the infancy. Let's talk about a hundred years in the future, kind of like rhinoplasty where people get uh, surgeries where they feel, okay, I, I want bigger lips. I want bigger breasts. I want bigger, whatever. And they do it to the point where it's no longer healthy. Could that not be the future of this sort of thing as well? Where people just go, yeah. So they just go like, Oh, remove this gene from me mutate this gene from me i want to be super muscular yeah what will be the, i mean in that sense what would there be like an industry do you think that develops from this maybe 100 maybe 200 years down the line where you just go into a clinic and alter your genes and how safe is that and who's to say 
at which point you've altered your genes too much. That's basically a really good description of Huxley's book, uh, A Brave New World. In you know, in that in that book, there's the kind of description of the the government having you know control over human breeding, uh, essentially. In 200 years, I I think that is the that for me is the worst scenario that that could happen. I uh, I really hope we don't get to that stage because um, we we really don't know that much about network biology and and what I mean by network biology is you know in the in the human body we have it's approximated to have about twenty five thousand uh, protein coding genes which is comparable in comparison to the amount of DNA a cell carries that's very little actually uh, but what we don't really understand is what this network of genes, how this network of genes works and what the regulation of these genes works like. So, you know, so that's a really good example that you, that you mentioned with the myostatin because if you trigger a small change in one gene, what you don't realize is that that gene actually interacts with another gene and then you cause some sort of malfunction there. So, you know, there are types of gene regulatory mechanisms that they don't rely on proteins. They rely on RNA, for example, and RNA is transcribed from a gene. So you end up with all these genes kind of self-regulating each other. And because we have very little knowledge on the network and how this works, if you just imagine it as a spider web, essentially, and you have all these genes very intricately, intricately linked, and all you have to do is kind of touch one string, which is what you do when you introduce a mutation. And it can send the whole thing rippling. And this is what happened with these two Chinese girls. You know, this little gene was twinked. All it was was a single mutation. And all of a sudden, they have a life expectancy decrease. Now, what we don't understand is why this mutation has led to that life expectancy decrease. Is it a case that this gene interacts with another gene that interacts with another gene that interacts with a fourth one that controls, for example, the heart muscle? That could be one link. But could really be anything, and we have no idea. So I think that that future that you described, I would, I would really, I would see that future happening, but only if we understand this network of of genes and how it works. And you know, within a single cell, uh, DNA is the uh, the most highly it has one of the best compression systems uh, I think ever. I think there's about uh, don't quote me on. Don't quote me on this correctly, but I think there's something like four thousand miles of DNA in a single cell packed. Yeah, I've heard something. And that's just similar. that's just incredible, you know. And and we have no idea how old, how old this four thousand miles of DNA works and interacts yeah. with each other. So how can you go and and cause mutations to improve a characteristic where you have no idea what effect that will have on other genes? And so. Uh, I think things with muscle growth, especially, are really interesting because a lot of that, a lot of the time, they're hormone regulated, uh, and there's a, a big issue there with if you alter one gene, does this mean you have a, a hormone influx or an outflux, and then this causes whatever domino effect? So I think for for the purposes of of my research, at least, I've really looked to focus on diseases which are well characterized, and we've done a lot of research into where there are only single point mutations in that gene. And, and what I mean is, you know, within, within that gene, you're changing a C to a, to a T or a G, for example. And that we already know causes the person to not develop that condition, as is the case with cystic fibrosis, for example, in, in many of the cases of cystic fibrosis. Mm. Um, so I think the focus should really be on those types of genes where we've characterized them well. Um, 
I could definitely see in 200 years, like, listen, you want your kids to be born with, I don't know, ping pong paddles for hands to make them, <laughs> to make them an Olympic champion. Like, yeah. um, yeah, you know, I could, I, could, I could see something like that, that hilariously outrageous happening, but um, I hope it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was thinking about sports, like, you know, sports in general, usually athletes push themselves to uh, a physical limit where it's, it's totally, um, what's it called? Uh, like totally, like not healthy, actually. <laughs> you know, they're, they're so physically healthy. Now then they're, they're unhealthy. Can you see not necessarily government getting involved, but, you know, big, like, for example, sports industries, you know, producing kids that are, you know, seven feet tall, uh, fast uh, <laughs> basketball players, investing the money into kind of this, this research? Because usually the money is what really drives whether research has been pushed forward or not. Can you see if a a future in this i think uh i, I think with sports it's um it's interesting because so from i mean from my perspective i would uh, add campaign really strongly against that um because i think uh we know with this type of technology it should be used for life-saving purposes or improving the quality of life of someone i guess you can argue there that you know making someone super fast or super tall or super strong is is improving their quality of life probably I think that this is why regulation is so important because you, you need to have, you know, a group of conditions that you say, right, we are only focusing on screening for these conditions and we're not trying to make like the super Captain America soldier. I, I don't think it will, I'd, I'd like to think it won't come to that. I'd like to think that we, we won't end up creating just a, a you know, a, a breed of superhumans uh, for sports. Um, I think that's like something within sport that's really nice is actually you, you see a person the way they're born and they're pushing themselves to the extreme. Um, I think that's something, you know, quite poetic and I'd hate to see that almost manufactured and fabricated. Do we have any information? So if someone has their genes edited, this become the dominant gene. This is passed on to their children or is it just stop at that one person? Yeah, so if, it's, uh, if the editing takes place in the germline, so at the, at the embryonic stage, uh, then it would be passed on. Yeah. Okay. It, uh, this would be passed on to future generations. I mean, you also have, uh, I mean, uh, I should say as well, within within the genetic, the genetic paradigm, you have dominant and recessive alleles. Um, and depending on what combination you have, you will have a certain phenotypic trait that you end up with. Uh, but no, in the cases of this genome editing, if, if it is done in the germline, then it, it would be passed on to future generations as well. Another example, say two people have conflicting edited genes, mm. what would happen if they had a child together? So, so this would be, two, yeah, so this would be two people who have, uh, sorry, you said conflicting genes, so. Yeah, and opposites. Does it come like to becoming like yeah. one that's more dominant, uh, essentially takes over, is that how it works? Yeah, I mean, if, uh, if, for example, you take, uh, if you take eye color, for example, um, that's how it, that's how it works. So you have certain, the blue eyes are, are recessive alleles. And so you need both parents to carry that particular trait uh, for the child to have blue eyes. Uh, and depending on their combination, it would, um, you know, you have probabilities of the child being born with that type of uh, phenotype. Uh, in this case, I think if you have, you know, if you have two people who've had their genes edited and they have a child together, it very much depends on what the gene is, because some genes, uh, you know, they work with this recessive dominant um, condition, 
you have other genes that are codominant. So they can actually, both of them can, I mean, all genes express each other. It's just that one expresses more than the other and you, that's why you get the phenotype. But you have certain genes that if they express at the same rate, for example, and they produce the same volume of whatever, um, you end up with that kind of codominant effect. Um, so it really, it really depends on the gene, uh, I would say. And the editing doesn't affect like the dominance? Uh, it could. It could. So, I mean, if you had, uh, if you, for example, you have a child who, um, uh, who was born with, with blue eyes, for example, you would, uh, you would need to edit, you know, the genes on both the mother's and the father's side. So that person would have, would essentially carry two recessive alleles for blue eyes. Now, depending on who that person marries will determine the fate of their children, if they will carry uh, blue eyes as well, for example. So if they marry someone with brown eyes, who is uh, what we would call um, non-heterozygous. So they just have two uh, dominant alleles. And then you mix that with that person. Then the probabilities are, it's only 25%. Uh, sorry, no, it's no percent actually. Yeah, because the other person doesn't carry the trait. Oh, yeah. um, so it really depends on, on who they marry, I suppose. So marrying is like society's own eugenics. Like before there was scientific, <laughs> there's like scientific genetics. People mm. look at their spouse and they'll say, oh, this is a, a tall man. Mm. This is a, a fin-figured lady. Big booty. And then they'd want to marry them. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I mean, definitely, I think evolutionary speaking, we're kind of, we are attracted to, um, I think we're attracted to people who are similar to us. That's, that's one thing. Uh, I think you're more likely to, uh, in a lot of cases, you know, copulate with, with people who have similar traits to you because you have that familiarity with them. Uh, I think as well, you know, when it comes to men, <clears throat> I don't know what women think of us, to be honest. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't think, I don't think they think much of me, but is uh, <laughs> you know, is a guy with broad shoulders and a, and a chest okay. out and, you know, a six pack is that, if that's, if that's your guy, then, you know, don't Not you. Here. But yeah. <laughs> No worries, leave us, leave us. <laughs> I'm joking, we look like Greek gods. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, ladies, hit us up in um, the comments section. <laughs> you know, it's um, it's that case. Uh, I mean, I I think there is there is some sort of uh, there are some evolutionary, uh, I suppose, traits that we look out for in the opposite gender, um, and I think it, it's very much based on where you're from. You know. I'm, um, uh, I mean, just my background, you know, I'm uh, part Middle Eastern and, and part European, right? So uh, I find Middle Eastern women very attractive, you know, someone else who's from China or from Japan might not. So there is that kind of, that element as well uh, in it. But I think, I think kind of going back to the eugenics part, I think for me, what the, the most worrying thing is that you have this, you know, you have this type of very revolutionary technology and, you because someone opts not to use it and they end up having a child who is born deaf or born blind it's really important that we don't end up discriminating against those people for not having chosen to do this technology i think that's yeah i think that's the you know there's there's something really interesting about humanity which i was thinking about the other day where we kind of run things in parallel with each other you know on one on one line we are this very empathetic species where we we care for those who 
uh, have conditions, which means their quality of life can be reduced. And that's really fantastic. I think that's what distinguishes us from other species. You know, we have this empathetic uh, side to us. And then we have this other side that runs in parallel, which is we need to be able to cure everything and we need to be able to live as long as we can. And these things seem to contradict each other, but they run at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where this, um, you know, I think with genome editing, this is where it kind of meets. It's okay, it's great that we have this. Does this mean that we should disregard everything else we've done for the last hundred yeah. years? I've got, um, I've got a question actually. Like, it seems like a lot of this research is done by, you know, well-abled people um, mm. that uh, not necessarily have lived a life with a specific disability. Uh, the question yeah. really revolves around where do we draw the line and who is, who, who do we kind of, uh, who do we use to inform us where to draw the line? It seems like it's mm. just well-labeled people saying, yeah, cystic fibrosis is bad, but, you know, we shouldn't, maybe uh, being blind is uh, in the in the category of it should be changed. But, do we actually uh, consult these communities where we ask, I don't know, a uh, community of people with Down syndrome and say, would you feel comfortable if uh, society was moving in that, this direction where you wouldn't exist? Um, yeah. I mean, if, if they live a fulfilled life and uh, I'm guessing quite a few, you know, quite a few people in, in those communities would be like, no, my life is complete. And um, just like everyone has their own uh, kind of, let's say, hindrances in life. I have mine and it's perfectly yeah. fine um what do you think what do you think about that kind of thinking and is there are are they involved in the conversation yeah so that's actually uh, i mean that's a piece of research that uh we're looking to do now actually so we are looking to uh, essentially send a survey out to people who are um to both people who care for those affected by multi, uh, by cystic fibrosis and those who have cystic fibrosis and in the survey, we, we ask them their opinions on this. You know, do you think that a genome editing technology that could potentially remove this condition, what are your opinions on it? Would you sign up for it? Are you in favor of it? There, are, there have really not been that many studies that have been done on, on that, uh, which is actually liaising with these communities. I think there are a few surveys that were done a few years ago uh, that showed uh, a, a large degree of support for these types of technologies being used um by the community but you know there's so many stakeholders involved you have those afflicted with the condition uh but then you also have uh, the scientists right do scientists feel comfortable with these technologies being used in the clinic that's another that's another stakeholder you have to consider and again we haven't we haven't really assessed and got the opinions of many scientists so and that's something that you know i'm i'm hoping to build on a lot because um it is about stakeholder engagement at the mm-hmm. end of the day yeah. and you need to make sure everyone has a voice in this. Yeah. I think your, your research is vital to be honest. Yeah. Kind of um, similar to the whole, uh, you know, cosmetic genome editing situation. I kind of want to discuss, okay. So cystic fibrosis, obviously we know that it, it can be a very crippling uh, condition and same thing with multiple sclerosis and so on and Huntington's, which have genetic components to them. But for example, with something like autism, which is a spectrum which can vary greatly, as in somebody could, you know, literally have zero to no hindrance to their day-to-day life, to it being something that, you know, stops them from being even able to communicate verbally with others. At which point, then along that spectrum, do you turn around and say, 
oh, you know, we can offer this, this genome editing or that mm-hmm. genome editing. And, you know, the, the worry is to kind of take it into an ableist uh, sort of corner where we're, we're kind of saying, if you do have, if you are somewhere on this spectrum, then, you know, it's almost as a, it's a bad thing and you're excluding these people. But one can argue that some of the greatest minds in history have been mm-hmm. those who have had, you know, some sort of, uh, they, they were somewhere on that. Yeah. on that spectrum because it, it does lead to in some cases you know being spectacularly good at maths even like stephen hawkins yeah. i mean he yeah. had uh, you know he had a crippling disease i think it was like uh, exactly. his nerves but <laughs> you know we, we wouldn't want to get rid of him i think that's a bad yeah. idea so yeah, yeah exactly. so i mean where do we where do we i mean how do we approach it in a way where we don't kind of say as steve just said get rid of them like because i don't think that should be the kind of direction we take it in and would it, would it not be better to channel funds into uh, potentially causes that are looking to make the world more safe for people who aren't uh, as able-bodied as others rather than trying to completely get rid of the notion of uh, you know this this person might have this condition or that condition let's just get rid of it genetically yeah no it's it's a really really good question Uh, with with autism I'm sure that you know a lot of the geniuses that have lived um, you know will have you know, there's, there's, I'm sure there's a chance that they would have lied at some extreme of that spectrum. And with autism, it's a really interesting one because it's a, you know, it, I, I don't even want to call it a condition, really. I don't, I, the way I see it, I don't even think of it as a condition. Um, I sort of think of it as, as you said, there is just people are on different sides of the spectrum, you know, and they have different uh, characteristics. I know that there are, there are a lot of studies with autism that look at dopamine receptors in the brain. And I think if you have a certain type of dopamine receptor, uh, you are, and a certain quantity of them, you are more likely to have this type uh, of spectrum shifting and things like that. With, um, I mean, with autism, I, unfortunately, I really don't know too much about the condition. But, um, you know, I, I would definitely, I'd 100% not want to get rid of of people who have these conditions absolutely not and i think it's um you know your point to do we need to shouldn't we make society a more uh, a place where these people feel more comfortable is a hundred percent what you know what i think it's uh, we, we should live in a world where everyone has equal access to any public services to uh, any type uh, of i suppose you know even careers and jobs for example, that should be a world that we aim for. And that's kind of where I, you know, bring it back to that sort of parallel thinking of we have this very empathetic side where we are, we really have made huge strides in, you know, in helping people who have disabilities access the world better, whether that's TFL installing a lift in their train station or whether that's, you know, something much more advanced. Um, At least it's good that we're moving in that direction where we draw the line with this is the million dollar question. And um, I, I wish I had an answer for that. Mm. I think um, to, from my point of view, it, it's very difficult to say what is a crippling disease. Um, that's a very subjective question. Yeah. The, you know, the ones I look at are um, like multiple sclerosis, like cystic fibrosis and Huntington's, as you said, these are diseases that we, we think we've characterized quite well genetically. Um, there are so many others that we haven't. And I think uh, that line for me, it's very gray. It's a very gray area. 
uh, and it's, uh, it's that's you know these are the types of difficult discussions we need to have uh, because uh, you know one one thing I, I just like to mention as well is you uh, you know I think on the you know I think on this podcast we all you know we all agree that it's important that everyone no matter who they are what condition they have it's important they all have equal access um, to anything in life yeah, be that careers or, or be that you know, public yeah. services yeah. Um, but you know there are people out there. And these people have existed because they were founders of the eugenics movement. And mm-hmm. these were people who are, you know, there are still eugenicists out there, 100%. Uh, there are people who say, why should we have these people in society? Because they're an economic burden mm-hmm. on society. Why should we allow um, people who are deaf and blind to have children? Because mm-hmm. how much does that cost the government economically per year? And financially, they, this will be their argument. They'll say, well, look, this is how much money we spend. And imagine if we didn't spend this money, we could spend it on something else. Mm. And I'll, I, I don't agree with that way. I'm very against that way. And that's something that I'll, I'll always campaign for. Because as you said, with, in the case of people who are on those extreme ends of the spectrum with autism, we need to be able to, we should be striving towards a society that incorporates them rather than one which says, attaches a value to them with a big dollar sign because these people can do incredible things yeah like in my opinion if, if people came to me with a core question should this happen i don't think so because uh if you look at nazi germany where they were burning you know uh gassing and burning disabled people were basically just more uh clever and uh let's say like more uh, nuanced about it where we do it beforehand so you know it's, it's not yeah. quite uh, uh, as, a, as an attrition as uh, they the nazi germans did and so are we any better but on the other hand i do understand that this is something that will whether i like it or not it's going to happen the technology is there it's been practiced so it's one of those things where do you ignore it or do you actually try and create a a, a framework to work mm-hmm. around it i think i i do agree that work needs to be done on it because it's going to happen anyway so you have to deal with it it's just like slavery right we we like to think that slavery is over but people in America in prisons are usually due to racial biases and are working for, you know, no labor. And these prisons are, are you, you know, yeah. And these prisons are making money. So their incentive is to have more people in prison. I mean, this is for me, it's black and white slavery. You see it all over the world in Qatar. Um, there's examples, etc. I don't want to point out specific nations, but what we, uh, I feel like in the, what we try to do in our modern era is try to see ourselves as better. But actually, in a sense, we're kind of, you know, subverting all our, our, our key issues and covering it with the, you know, the blanket of science and improvement. But actually, we, we need to look deeper into ourselves and question what we're doing. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, actually, um, like the points that you both brought up kind of, uh, for me, intertwine quite a bit in that, you know, as you said, there'll be certain people in society who say, well, it's an economic burden to, you know, keep these people around. And in the same way that, you know, Steve kind of mentioned how we, we like to think of ourselves of having improved from 50, 60 years ago. But a lot of the time, the counter argument for what we usually stand for, you, like this, this group of people here, is that, well, if these people were in the wild, if they were, you know, a tiger or a lion and they were born with a disability, they'd just be left behind this survival of the fittest. But we as a species can't think of ourselves as being almost sentient to the point where we're godlike. We're trying to literally defeat death and also be like, well, we're not going to help this person now because they were born with a minor disability or even a major disability. 
mm-hmm. you know, they, you can't have it both ways. You can't see yeah. yourself as the supreme species and also be callous at the same time and almost animalistic in your approach to those around you. And as you yeah. said, with the parallel kind of um, parallel versions of ourselves where we're very empathetic, but at the same time, you know, we do other kind of counterproductive things. It, it, it's a similar kind of approach where, yes, if this was, if we were animals, we might leave this, leave this person to be and fend for themselves, but we're not. Yeah. And that's the whole concept of science is that we're trying to do bigger and better things and move our species on to a new level. And we can't do that if we're, if we're kind of trying to almost discriminate against those that are born with a disability, we have to elevate them to live, a, you know, the same quality of life that we're living. And it kind of touches exactly. on the Steve thing as well with the modern day slavery of prison systems. If the system is corrupt, we can't elevate to the next level. And so I think. I think it's, um, yeah, I, there's, there's one example I, I remember a lot, which is, um, it, you know, in, in the US, there was a lot of, um, you know, in the, during the early 20th century, there was a lot of forced sterilization of people who were, they were deemed burdens to society. And this could have just been someone who was an alcoholic. You know, I think uh, I think all of us at some point have maybe been alcoholics. Uh, <laughs> uh, does it do you, you know you sterilize someone just because they have a drinking problem? Um, and there, there's this. Uh, there was I remember uh, something I was reading a few years ago of a nurse who she uh, she used to work on death row uh, with inmates who were you know going to going to be killed. And she had a quote that sort of really resonates with, I think, this whole topic of, of empathy, which is, you know, even if you have a person who has con- you know, committed so many murderous acts and they have damaged people's lives and ruined people's lives, she still had a level of empathy for these people, no matter how psychologically damaged they were, no matter what they had done. Um, she still had that empathy towards a human being in their last phases of their life. Um, and I really hope we don't lose that em- empathetic trait because I really think that's what separates us from, from other species around the world. As you said, you know, survival of the fittest. If, um, if one alpha dies, another one takes its place and that alpha is left behind, you know, and that alpha doesn't breed, you know, <laughs> in a lot of, uh, in a lot of species that, yeah. you know, the females will, will go to whoever the other alpha so it's uh, it's a really interesting, really interesting topic. And I think, you know, with survival, it's always funny, like sometimes you, you hear these people quote, as you said, oh, but, you know, had they been in the wild, they would have been left behind. And if this person is wearing glasses, you're like, well, if you were left in the wild, you wouldn't be able to see where you were going. I feel very so you personally. You'd be munched by a lion real quick. You know, it's really, you know, I think, I think all of us, I'd be, I really highly doubt there is a single human being alive today which has not benefited from medical technology oh, in definitely. some way. Be yeah. it if you were, I mean, I was born, I was born as a cesarean, you know, mm. as Same a C-section. Yeah. You know, my mom would have, uh, I would have not been born had C-sections not been available. And That's a crazy. lot of children in the past were, died because of that. Mm. A lot of people who wear glasses, uh, sorry, Daniel, you know, they, <laughs> if, you, if you left them in the wild, they wouldn't mm. be able to see what they were eating, what they were, where they were hey. going. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Death. What predators <laughs> come stalking him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is I'd that a lion so or is that a giraffe? So dead. Yeah. So, dead. 
So it's really, it's funny that like, you know, you have people who kind of, you know, they, they kind of stand up tall and say, ah, yes, but, you know, burden on society. And it's like, mm. have you ever been to a doctor at any point in your life? Exactly. <laughs> you <know? Yeah. laughs> so it's, uh, it's quite incredible that, you know, you have people who think in this way. But yeah. um, I mean, even with the sterilization thing that you spoke about, like, for example, you they've deemed somebody who's an alcoholic that you know oh you you shouldn't be breathing with anyone or whatnot but like who makes that determination are you really willing to allow the government to decide anything i mean we had to beg this government a little over two months ago to feed children which was something that they thought was an ethical quandary so realistically speaking i mean who who even sets that into place like if two people with down syndrome for example fall in love does that love have any any less value just because of you know who they are i'm gonna start crying do you, yeah <laughs> do you know what i mean so it's, yeah. it's like uh, who are you to decide what is and isn't correct and uh, you know acceptable and uh, we've discussed it throughout the podcast of you know 60 70 years ago how how people were viewed uh, which groups were seen as better and which groups were seen as worse and that's obviously not the case today i mean the whole blonde thing i asked are blonde people smarter or was that the the consensus back then but then today in modern day they usually there tends to be that stereotype of blonde people are actually dumber so it changes with time so who are are we to decide what is and isn't right going forward obviously wrong wrong generalizations (laughs) incredibly incorrect generalizations but you know that's the kind of point that i'm making you you go off of what basically what what is the the mm. bible so to speak of who should and shouldn't be able to love and live like it's it's yeah. not up to you basically it's um yeah I, i'd really recommend a, a book i just finished reading recently is um it's by an author called philippa levine and she's uh she's a a professor who has studied eugenics for a huge huge amount of time and she has a really great book called uh, a just it's just called an intro, a sh- very short introduction to eugenics and uh, it's a really short little book it's only about you know 100 pages and there are really small pages but i'd really recommend you know anyone who's listening just to pick up that book it's like five pounds just give it a read and just have a look at humanity's uh disposition to self-destruct mm-hmm. because it is astonishing when you read this stuff and when you realize it was not that long ago that Aborigine children were being abducted. It exactly. was in the seventies and eighties. You know, this was my, my parents' generation. This was happening. Yeah, you know? yeah. uh, and I, I spoke with, uh, I mean, my, I, I myself, I, you know, I haven't, we haven't, I don't think spoken about religion too much. And from my personal perspective, you know, I was brought up as a Catholic um, and it's, it's always been really interesting for me um, trying to have religion and science in the same bracket. Mm-hmm. And I, I spoke to um, one of my friends who is, he's actually a trainee priest, uh, very smart guy, um, you know, went to university, worked for Teach First for many years and decided I, I want to join the priesthood. And I, I brought this topic up to him and, and he told me that, you know, in the Catholic you know, perspective on, on bioethics, he said that, you know, wouldn't it just be great if we could um, just take some time to think about the consequences of our actions. And wouldn't it be great that we didn't just press the self-destruct button? And we have this tendency with hum- as humans to, we love to do things without thinking of consequences. We're yeah. very spontaneous in that Every regard. Day. And maybe that's instinctual, who knows? Um, I think that's, and when he said that to me, I just thought, shit, you know, 
Like, why don't we just like take a step back and think, what are the repercussions if this becomes available? Mm. You know, are we just going to deal with the mess as it, as it comes, or are we going to try and prepare something? And, and this is, you know, this is why I started studying this because I'd like to think that we can think of some sort of cohesive plan to put together before the shit storm hits. No, I totally agree that we tend to you know, jump to the gun and try things out before deeply thinking things through. I mean, you can see it with the nuclear uh, age where you jump the gun. You know, they didn't even know what the long-term effects were of uh, nuclear detonation. And yeah. then we see the effects of it. And yeah, I guess some of them, you know, you know a, a lot of the times they regret after the fact. For example, like the Iraq war is another one, right? After the fact, they regret. But the question is, why don't you just, you know, beforehand actually have a think about it properly uh, and not decide just based off uh, you know geopolitics or whatever and just think of the consequences mm. i think it's it's funny i think it comes to uh, we kind of discuss like over who has power over this and who says this is the line and that is the line in a lot of cases it's people who have no experience in the topic you know these are yeah, <laughs> i can't imagine any politician being able to have this discussion um, no offense to them, but they they just do not have the, uh, the understanding <laughs> of how these exactly and have of how these topics work. You know, this yeah. shouldn't be up to to uneducated people in this topic. I should this, state as well. You know, there's yeah. you people have knowledge across all types of topics, but if you don't have the knowledge on this, then why are you making the decision? That's correct, and it's it's a difficult one because politics is usually driven by money, and then. <laughs> You ask yourself who's behind the money, and well, this is, I guess this is a podcast for another episode, yeah. and we'll probably have you on to be honest. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a long line, and we have to be careful with this. It's, I think I think this will be like a key milestone in human history um, if the, if if it goes forward, and depending on how we approach it, uh, you know, yeah. human race is going to go left or right essentially. Um, yeah, you know, will it be more of a casual thing, or will it be something that you know that scientists have thought of deeply and there's very very strict regulation uh for allowing uh, certain things to happen we'll see i mean uh, in my mind i've got this like dystopian mad max world where you know yeah. you can do whatever you want and uh yeah that's pretty much it <laughs> you know, spend money and kill yeah. each other and <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's, you know the trying to stay away from like the matrix and uh and you know huxley's a brave new world that's uh I think that's if we achieve that, that would that would be great. I'd hate to see, I'd hate to see humans breeding for the sake of breeding and yeah. just replacing themselves. Um, I think I think that really uh, that would ruin us as uh, as a species. I just want to say that this conversation, like, it just fills me up with joy knowing that we have scientists like Yusuf and Aaron, like, just knowing these are the people that are going to be working on this kind of stuff. Because, like, for me. The first, like, eugenics people were Spartans that just throwing babies off a cliff, yeah. seeing who was strongest. Yeah. Yeah. So now we've, we've progressed. We've got Yusuf on the job. I'm just happy <laughs> to know that it's in safe hands. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you don't, <laughs> don't know Yusuf well enough. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. Maybe we don't know Yusuf well enough. But from all we see, he seems to be a stellar guy. So Yeah, let me, let me, let me just put the babies away. <laughs> so, you know what? Um, uh, Dan, now you... Uh, can I ask my question? Or? Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I just yeah. wanted to say that. Okay. 
So uh, just to kind of wrap it up almost and to lighten the mood a little bit, uh, because we have <laughs> talked about some quite heavy stuff. Um, if there was an X-Men superpower mm. that you could acquire through genome editing, because obviously they, they get theirs through the mutation of the X gene, which one would you get? Mm, curveball, see? That's, uh, <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. Uh, <laughs> you didn't tell me, Steve, this was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> this is the most important question. <laughs> the crux of it all, all lies here. Uh, out of the X-Men, uh, you know, I think, I think it would probably be, I think it would probably be Iceman, I think. Um, I think I, I think as a kid, I, I loved, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the Human Torch, uh, even though the Fantastic yeah, Four films have been like really crap. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I think, pro- <laughs> I think probably, I think probably Iceman, uh, what was his name? Bobby, Bobby something. Bobby, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he's probably one of my fave characters. He's like he's like frozen from The Incredibles. Yeah, not as not as cool. Super super. What about you guys? Oh, my one would yeah. be uh, regeneration, definitely. So it'll be it'll be Wolverine. So you know, he can remake himself from a single cell. So I'd basically be immortal. Uh, the guy that says <laughs> he hates life. Aaron hates life. Everyone wants to self I hate life, but I also love life, as in I never want it to end. So <laughs> that's why I'd probably pick that's that one. Conflict. What about you, Dan? What do you think? Uh, telekinesis. Telekinesis. Like, telekinesis just just controlling cool. things. I can just imagine Dan on a date just reading the girl's mind and like playing the game like <laughs> Oh you know I'm into uh into uh, you know acrobatics. <laughs> I didn't mean that. No, I think it means like literally moving objects, not mind reading, yeah. right? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, moving okay. objects. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm watching guy. you, Dan. I'm watching you. Dan, I feel like would be a villain for some weird reason. I don't Dan know why, but yeah. Definitely yeah. Magneto. Definitely <laughs> Magneto. Okay. <laughs> I, I think I'd pick teleportation. Teleportation is the one, man. You can just go anywhere at any time. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're bored, go to the Bahamas. Go yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You just put your shorts on and go. Like, <laughs> It's a no-brainer. Yeah. Like. Yeah, BRB. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, <yeah>. BRB. <laughs> oh, it's my my lunch break at work, and off you go swimming. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, should I should I then go to wrap it up? Yeah, go on. Uh, so obviously, thank you, Yusuf, for coming on today. It was a very good conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks for having me, guys. This has been my this has been my first uh, my first podcast episode ever, uh, and it's been Aww. a lot of fun. Uh, I'm sure you'll for, be on many more podcasts me. because you're very thanks. good. At, you're a very articulate man. So. Yeah, thank you for coming yeah, on. Learned it, man. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, to the listeners, thank you for listening. And uh, do follow us on uh, Twitter at Podcast Verbal and on Instagram at uh, The Verbal Reasoning Podcast. Uh, same thing can be found on Instagram. Yeah. If you follow our Linktree uh, link, you will see that we're literally on everything. So if, if you want to find us, you can. Uh, and yeah, send us suggestions for future episodes and any questions you really had for this episode, we can always pass them on to you. We'll also put uh, an Amazon link for the books that Yusuf suggests. So if you want to help support yeah. us and you're interested in uh, reading the book, uh, use our link to buy it. And it's at no cost of you. Uh, it just helps support the podcast. Well, thank you. Cheers. Uh, Steve, why didn't you say who said having fun and being serious can't go hand in hand? That was bloody brilliant.
uh, our our face is going to be on this because no. I haven't got a fa- I haven't got a face for the radio. So, uh, <laughs> no, you're good. It's all, it's all sound. Yeah. We um, audio it the whole thing. Yeah, we'll make a cover photo of some sort and just slap the audio. We'll, on we'll slap thing. your face as a cover photo. Just the most embarrassing one. <laughs> 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 it's like, should should like should this man be stopped? Eugenics. <laughs> 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 Wanted poster, just your name on there. Stop this, this pest. And yeah. <laughs> that was bloody brilliant.